You're listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached during the online worship service of Central United Methodist Church. We are located in Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to join us for our live worship experience through Facebook or Zoom every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Visit www.cumcballston.org for details. There you can also learn more about our congregation where we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. Matthew 25, 31-40 When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand, and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will Answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Before each of our sermons during this Lenten series, we are going to hear a prayer poem. This week's prayer poem is called Before It's Too Late. I don't know exactly what lies ahead, how far we will have to travel on the road of unrest. I cannot foretell the number of bombs that will have to explode or the lives that will have to be lost before before we understand that we cannot kill each other into the future we think we've imagined. You cannot hate enough to make yourself happy. You cannot destroy enough to make yourself feel secure. You cannot oppress others enough to make yourself feel superior. You cannot commit enough evil to make yourself feel holy. I do not know exactly what lies ahead, how far we will have to travel on the road of unrest. I cannot foretell how many rights will have to be taken away or how much progress will have to be reversed before before we understand that we cannot persecute each other into the future we think we have imagined. We cannot neglect each other enough to feel worthy. We cannot starve each other enough to feel full. We cannot silence one another enough to feel heard. We cannot fragment each other enough to feel whole. I do not know exactly what lies ahead, how far we will have to travel on the road of unrest. I cannot foretell how many babies' bodies will have to float on the sea of greed and vain glory before before we understand that we cannot bully our way into the future we think we've imagined. 
We cannot bury each other deep enough to feel alive. We cannot rape each other enough to feel loved. We cannot infect each other enough to feel well. We cannot enslave one another enough to feel free. Before it's too late, may we understand that the call is coming from inside the house. Before it's too late, may we comprehend that the stench, the rot, brokenness, emptiness, insecurity, woundedness, disease is from within and not without. Erasing you will not heal me. May we understand before it's too late. God help us to understand before it's too late. Amen. I'm currently a student at Vanderbilt Divinity School, finishing a master's of theological studies. There were no places that were off limits for someone to come up to me and start asking questions. Where are you from? Me, I'm from Michigan. No, I mean, where are you actually from? Where were you born? Where were your parents born? I was eight years old when I came to realize that I did not look black. My family has a wide range of skin tone. And even though I'm one of the lighter skinned people in my family, it was not uncommon for me to see people with similar color as me who would be named as black. But on the playground that day, I was confronted with the reality that my color was somehow different, that people saw me differently. At eight years old, society told me that it was not colorblind, especially when your color isn't easily named especially when your color isn't the same as your mother, especially when your father is a darker black man. It's not colorblind when your teacher calls your parents to make sure it's your grandfather there to pick you up from school, even though he's the one that dropped you off. Society isn't colorblind when the police have been called to report you as kidnapped when you're with your great grandparents. And sometimes, it isn't colorblind when it asks you, where are you from? In the church, I find a similar pattern. Rather than a common welcome or a good morning, I usually end up with a well-meaning interrogation. Did someone invite you today? How did you hear about us? Where is your church home? Independently, all of these questions are fine. Even taken all together, these questions can help to start a conversation. And I strongly believe that it's the church's job to start these types of conversations, but only if it plans on continuing them as well. My experience in the church has been a lot more of, why are you here? Instead of, I'm glad to see you. And while the church would want to be welcoming of the stranger, it actually does a much better job of reminding her that she is an outsider, that he doesn't belong. I've never been much for memorization, certainly not when it comes to the Bible. For the life of me, I just cannot give you chapter and verse numbers for any key passages that people love to quote, that I love to quote. Where was it that Paul said, how love is the greatest of the three more than faith and hope? Where was it that Paul talked about nothing separating us from the love of God? Where exactly is the Sermon of the Mount? It's all a blank for me. If it wasn't for the search option on Bible Gateway's app, I'd be in real trouble. 
But there's one chapter and verse number I have memorized. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Today's scripture. Here in today's scripture, in the plainest language possible, Jesus is telling us, telling me, telling you, what to do and what not to do. And there's two very important lessons for us here, now in our today, and it hinges right off of Bishop Miller's prayer poem. The first lesson is we need to change. The second is if we don't change, we're going to be in big trouble. Where does it say we need to change? Well, for openers, to do what Jesus tells us to do, we need to disabuse ourselves that we are trapped in a culture of scarcity. To be blunt, our capitalist society is built upon the myth of scarcity. Advertisers spend a lot of money trying to teach us that we need what they're selling to us and that we better hurry up and get it before it goes away. And it isn't just commercial transactions that trap us this way. You, you see, we've been acculturated. We've been trained to, to think in terms of, of me before you. Quick test. How many of us felt anxiety about losing out on getting the COVID vaccine? Hmm? Answer that in your own hearts. Say yes in your hearts if you got the same anxious feeling you might get when you have to stand in line for anything. I've registered. When, when will my date come? Who got that date ahead of me? Will, will they run out? Will, will whatever. It comes from being cultured in scarcity. Remember being at the airport and sensing that tension going up when it came time to board the plane, particularly by rows? Didn't you feel even just a little bit that you had to get up and get in line way before your time was called? I've felt that way. And it really takes some hard work to stay in my seat, even though I'm in um, section C, and it'll be a while yet. Those feelings come from being enmeshed in a culture of scarcity. And Christ welcomes us out of that egocentric world. But that's not the only change we're called to in Matthew 25. Look at the list we have to do. There's nothing here that dictates we're to act only for those who are like us. In point of fact, it's pretty clear that we're to go outside of our place of comfort to act. And the words are quite plain. They're right there between giving to the thirsty something to drink and giving to the naked some clothing. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. In first century Palestine, in Jesus' time, a stranger was someone who was totally different from you. Was a Gentile. So we need to look beyond our circle to carry out what we're told to do in Matthew 25. This is radical Christian hospitality. Here's a test. If the only ones gathering with us look and act like us, we are not practicing the radical Christian hospitality Christ calls us to. Are there strangers among us? And we can go deeper in terms of this giving. It's a well-known fact that in giving, in giving of oneself, one is changed in the giving. To truly give takes courage because it's the courage to change. 
And we capture some of that sense in that old saying about it being better to give than to receive, but that barely touches what I'm trying to say here and what I think Jesus and every spiritual teacher has tried to teach. Lilla Watson is an Australian Aboriginal who has dedicated her life to the civil rights of her people and her sex. She puts it this way. If you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. If I show up to help you, I'm, not, I'm coming at you with a superior attitude. If I'm coming to teach you, I'm showing you up as being ignorant and me as the superior person. If I'm showing up to lead you, then I'm treating you as a follower who cannot act for yourself. Now, it shouldn't escape notice that each of these things I put up there, the helping, the teaching, the leading, each of these high-minded claims was used as an excuse to enslave black and brown people and used to civilize the North American indigenous people by destroying their culture. No, when we claim the work of Matthew 25 as the church of Jesus Christ, we're bound to do that. We must enter that work as strangers ourselves and we need to change in order to do that. For those of you who are more comfortable with a scriptural underpinning for what I've just said, you look no further than Jesus as he invited himself into strangers' homes. He invited himself into a tax collector who was sitting in a tree. He invited himself into the homes of other tax collectors, other people, and even into Pharisees. He came as a stranger to change people. You see, that's what strangers can do. They can change us. So just how do we change in that? We'll get there in a moment. But first, I have to treat that second point, that second lesson. Remember, I said there were two really important lessons here. Here's the other one. Our reading today stops at verse 41, but there is more, and you might remember it. Here it is. Then he will say to those on his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you didn't do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is our second lesson. Now, if you want to talk about this passage in terms of eternal punishment or hell or your beliefs and mine about those sort of things. Give me a call and we'll talk privately. But for now, let's leave it as agreeing that if we ignore what it is we're supposed to be doing, we'll draw a pretty big ticket. Okay. This path of change for us all started with our baptism. With baptism, we made promises about what we would reject Satan and all of his works, and what we would accept, a life of following Jesus Christ. And with that, we became members of the church. And with that, we agreed in a covenant with God to change. That's what it means to repent. 
To repent means to change. The fundamental idea of Lent is a time set aside for changing, for looking into ourselves and seeing how we can change, how we can be different. During the times of the um, early catechumens, the first 100, 200 years, where Lent was the time where, where those who are studying to become Christians in, in, came even closer together and spent those last 40 days together preparing for their baptism and having demonstrated that they had changed their ways of earlier life. To repent means to change, and it means to use God's grace to overcome our sinful nature. It means to overcome our sense of other, our fear of strangers. By the way, who does the baptizing? Him. It's not Pastor Sarah. Pastor Sarah provides the outward sign, the pouring of water. But recall the words that you may have heard Pastor Sarah use as she's baptized. I baptize thee in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the name of. That's where the baptism is. It's God who does that baptizing. It's God who in baptism sets up, baptism sets us up with grace to change, to repent. And that too is why we are in the church. For the church is a community that is on a road of change and repenting. And we can help each other. You see, life is a continual repentance for us. Matthew 25, we're given some specific ways to commit to making our changes. But there's more. J.R. Briggs puts it this way. There's a real danger in true Christianity. When it's real, it's not safe. Here's some examples and suggestions. Last week, Pastor Sarah spoke to a powerful way, to a practice of being with others who are crying out, how long, oh Lord, how long? Let me suggest that responding, all lives matter, to the cry, black lives matter, is not being with others it's not being with others who are crying out, how long? Let me suggest that if you claim that Christianity is under attack in the United States, you're living in a world that you've made in your image, not one that was made by God and for which Jesus died. Let me suggest that if you're white and feel you're being oppressed, then maybe you're really experiencing equality for the first time. Let me suggest that if you cannot conjure up before you the image of someone who you hate, who you feel is an enemy, who's against everything you are for, and actually able to pray for them, to wish them the peace of Christ, then you have work to do. Look for other ways to testing yourself during this Lenten period of repenting. We all live with myths and half-truths and stories we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better. We need to get out from under those stories. There's a real danger in true Christianity. When it's real, it's not safe. We can't go to those places where we've hid in safety. Jesus pushed people beyond their self-stories. Look for ways that Jesus can push you beyond your own self-made stories into his story. Amen.